0: You can't handle the truth. That has become one of the most famous movie lines in all of American English uh, movie history. You can't handle the truth. It comes from a movie, A Few Good Men. And I think one of the things that made that line so good was not just the line itself or the overall context of the movie, but because it was within this smaller context of this courtroom drama. And I was after studying for the sermon was reflecting upon uh, how many movies uh, are dedicated, not just movies, TV shows are dedicated to the courtroom, to this fight for justice, this examining of the evidence, two good lawyers going at it. There's a captivating drama to the courtroom. There's something that's just so intriguing about the courtroom drama. And I think that it's that same impulse that makes today's text, at least in my mind, so exciting, so captivating, because we've been discussing for many weeks now the failures of Eli, the priest, and his sons. And today, Eli is basically going to stand trial. He is going to receive a prophet from God who speaks on behalf of God and God is now serving as Eli's judge and prosecutor. Eli has met his tribunal and we are finally going to see what God plans to do with Eli and his sons. If you would please open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We will begin in verse 27, if you would please follow along, for these are the very words of God. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him, out of all the tribes of Israel, to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, and this is that that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to my, forgive me, shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. So Eli has stood before the Lord through this prophet. And the text is basically broken in half. We have the charges brought against Eli. And then we have the just sentencing. For he has been found guilty of those charges. We have Eli's charges, and then we have Eli's sentencing. So let's look at the charges, which can be found from verses 27 through 30. They come, in verse 27, from all the text gives us is a man of God. That's uh, an Old Testament way of talking about a prophet. And we see him give a prophecy, and he even uses the famous prophetic phrase, Thus saith the Lord. So here comes this man from God speaking on behalf of God. Now what's interesting is for some reason 1 Samuel decided not to reveal the identity of this person. We have no idea who this person is. And what's even more interesting is what we're going to find in chapter 3 is that God was not really revealing himself very much during this time. The the people of God were, were actually wondering and astonished at why God had been so silent. It was generally considered at this time God's done speaking. And that's why what we'll see next week when Samuel starts hearing the voice of the Lord, it's like this amazing revival, like God is finally speaking to us again. So in this drought of revelation, we have this random unknown person who comes and speaks a prophecy on behalf of the Lord. As a matter of fact, I'll try to make this case next week, but I'm not even sure Eli believes him yet. I'm not even sure Eli, after hearing this, was fully convinced in his own mind that this truly was a prophecy from the Lord. Regardless, there's this interesting situation that I just desperately wish God gave us more of, but apparently it's not important to God, so we're not going to dwell on it. An unknown prophet shows up to Eli and speaks on behalf of the Lord. And we will see his prophecy comes true, so it's a legitimate prophecy. And I love how he even just briefly in, I think it was verse uh, 36, was it? Uh, no, it was earlier than that. Uh, he, he, he tells them, uh, he, after giving this prophecy, he says, this will be a sign to confirm the prophecy. Here's when you know the prophecy's true. And it's that both of your sons will die on the same day. And so he is so, this person knows he's speaking on behalf of God. He knows he's seeing the future on behalf of God. That he's even willing to say, listen, I can prove it. This is going to happen. So when it does happen, you'll know that I'm right. And so just as a really brief side note, uh, if you ever meet someone today who claims to be hearing from God, there's two things you need to ask them for. Number one, the New Testament talks about how prophets and apostles are attested to by signs and wonders. So ask them for a miracle, an on-the-spot miracle. Not one they did 10 years ago that no one recorded or everybody saw. You demand from them a miracle right away and also demand a sign from them. Give them, ask for something to prove their prophecy. This is something that the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament were very comfortable doing. So if someone comes up to you and claims to be hearing the voice of God, just give them a quick test. Show me a miracle, give me a sign. If they can't do that, ignore them. But anyway, back to Eli's charges. What are the charges that God gives Eli? Well, he says in verse 27 through 28 that Eli has abused his privileges. Eli has abused his privileges, 27 and 28. After the man of God comes, God asks him rhetorically, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. The first thing God brings to Eli's attention is that Eli is an extremely privileged man. He beckons him back and reminds him of the privileged office he's in. Uh, Because if you remember, what what is God talking about here? It was only a certain family. It was only a certain tribe that was allowed to minister in in the priesthood. It's not like today we have pastoral calls and pastoral searches and you can just find any qualified man, whether from among you or from outside or went to seminary or didn't. We have this gift that God has given us of choice and variety. It wasn't like that. It had to be from a specific tribe. God blessed. He gave a privilege to a specific family. And it's interesting because, you know, in our modern day culture, privilege has become a bad word. Right? It's, you're bad if you've got privilege. In the Bible, you want to know what's another name for privilege? Blessing. Blessing. Yes, some people are privileged more than others. Of course, nobody's denying that. The question is, is that a bad thing? Do we automatically look at someone who's been blessed beyond the measure that we've been blessed and assume there must be something wrong here? They must have done something wrong. They must be evil. This isn't fair. The Bible doesn't deny blessing. The Bible denies villainizing blessing. There are people in this world who are more blessed than everyone in this room. But everyone in this room is more blessed than a lot of people in this world. It's just impossible to keep track of all the blessings and villainize and demonize everyone who has some. Blessings are good. Privilege is good. If God gives you privilege, take advantage of it. Pass it on to your children and don't be ashamed about it. And more importantly, don't neglect it. That's what Eli did he was put in this position of honor this holy position he didn't earn it he got it just by his birthright it was just it was it was, it was just passed on <laughs> and what did he do he squandered it he took advantage of it god says that is a shameful thing you are in this privileged position and you took advantage of it you took advantage of me you took advantage of my people Which means you were abusing this privilege. He abused his privilege. And the way he abused his privilege is his second charge, verse 29. He profaned that which is sacred. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves with the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel. The ESV takes a more poetic, less literal translation of this. It says, Why do you scorn at my offering? If you have a more literal translation, it says, Why do you kick at my offering? This was a Hebrew a Hebrew phrase, a metaphoric phrase. It's like God hoists up these sacred things, and what did Eli do? He just kicked them over. He took that which was sacred and he trampled on it. He treated it as if it was not sacred. Jesus gives us a metaphor for this idea, this idea of throwing pearls before swine. You don't take something valuable and precious and holy and throw it in the mud to be trampled over by pigs. That's what they did. They took that which was sacred and they treated it like it was worthless. And God hates that. They profaned, they scorned, they kicked at the sacrificial system, the holy religion of the people. But then he even throws a third charge in by telling us what was his motivation. What is it that really caused Eli to do all of this? what's really at the root of all of this abuse? Well he says in verse twenty nine, Why do you scorn my sacrifices, my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? The third charge brought against Eli is that he loves his children more than he loves God. His children's happiness, his children's success, his children's reputation, not being at conflict with his children, not being at odds with his children, all of that was far more important to him than honoring God. And let's not pretend like this isn't a temptation each and every one of us deals with from time to time. If it wasn't a universal human experience, I don't think Jesus would have been so excited During his earthly ministry to remind us of things like this. Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And what does that sword do, Jesus says? It divides families. It will divide mother from daughter, father from son, children from parents. I have come to tear families apart. Not intentionally, not because he wants to do that, but because he knows the gospel is more important than anything. And our relationship to Jesus is more important than anything. So when your unbelieving family members make you choose between Jesus or them, Jesus says the choice is easy. Tear your family up. Depart from them. Jesus even says if you, do not, if you love father, mother, sister, brother more than me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. You cannot come to Christ if you don't come to Christ as we just just got done singing. I surrender all. That includes my children. That includes my cousins. That includes my parents. Take everything. Take the world, but give me Jesus. That's true discipleship. And Eli wasn't willing to do that. I want to have a little bit of God and I want to keep my family. He wasn't willing to discipline his sons. He wasn't willing to tell his sons are wrong. He wasn't willing to confront his sons. He wasn't willing to work for repentance. He honored them more than he honored God. God was not first. That is a serious crime for any human being, but especially for the priest. Especially for the priest. God deserves our ultimate allegiance, and he did not have ultimate allegiance in Eli's life. And so these three charges have been brought. God is the just judge. He knows all things. Eli's guilty. So what's his sentencing? What is the just judge going to do to Eli? Well, let's look at verse 31. 31 through 32. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever the first thing he's going to do is he's going to remove him from office. He has the strength of his arm, which is a metaphor in the Bible for a kind of authority, right? If the Bible talks about, for example, that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, what does that mean? God is spirit. He doesn't have a right hand. Why not the left hand? Because the right arm was a metaphor in that culture for strength and power. The right arm of a nation was its military. It's authority. It's rule. So when we talk about Jesus ascending to the right hand of God, what we're talking about is Jesus holding this position of authority and power over all the universe. So Eli has this position of authority, a position of power. He has a right arm and God's going to cut it off. He's going to remove him from his authority. But more than that, he's going to... With, not only remove the strength of that arm, but remove the strength of his father's house. He's going to cut off the, f- the strength of their family, meaning their family is no longer going to be renowned and their family is no longer going to be privileged. We see that he, he first tells them that, there, he tells them a couple times actually, that there will not be an old man in your house. Your children will die by the sword. He's basically telling them that Eli's descendants are not going to live into old age. They're going to experience the tragedy of premature deaths. And and that's one of the ways that we take away the glory and the strength of a family. If you think about what should be all of our ideals for family, this should be our ideals. We know that ultimately this is up to God. We can't always control this. So I'm not condemning you if you don't have this. I'm not saying that you've done something wrong if you don't have this. But ideally, we would live long into our old age. We would have tons of children and our children would have tons of children and all of them would live into their old age. That's ideal. We want to be fruitful. We want to have lots of kids. And we want our kids to have lots of kids. And and we know that that's not always possible. But when it does happen, it's a glorious thing and we desire it. Eli's not going to have that. He comes from this holy family, a family that needs descendants. God says, no, they're going to die. There's not going to be an old man in your house. And not only that, so, so God's going to remove him from office, but he's going to curse his family. Not only is they're not going to have old men and they're going to die early, but those who don't die are no longer going to be privileged. We are told that they are going to look at the blessings of Israel, meaning they're not sharing in it. And he also, look at what he says in verse 36 at the very end. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore the priest for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. The family that was supposed to be ministering in the temple are now going to it begging for, just give me a job because I need to eat. The place where they were supposed to be abundant and taken care of and glorious and happy is the place they now come groveling to. Do you see the severe justice of God? Do we are we reminded of this text how much God hates sin? Are we reminded in this text that God hates sin probably a lot more than we do? I guarantee to the person who maybe has not been studying the Bible their whole life if this was if we had a visitor in this church and this was the first sermon they ever heard, I promise you to them this sounds really harsh. It sounds unfair. Curse my children, that's not fair. God hates sin. And he really hates Eli's sin. So he's going to kill his children. He's going to kill his offspring. He's going to remove him from office. And the offspring that he doesn't kill are going to be beggars. But there's one more thing God promises to do. And this is a judgment to Eli. And that God's going to replace him. You might say you've already talked about that, removing him from office. No, those are not the same thing. Right, in theory, God could have just said, in theory, hypothetically, he could have just said, you know, this whole priesthood, sacrificial, it's, it's just not working out. I tried, Aaron, I tried, you know, I, I tried this lineage, this family thing, and eh, let's just start over, do something new. That would have been a judgment on Eli. He would have been kicked out, prom, you know, privilege gone, authority gone, blessing gone, and now God's, but no, Eli has to suffer through something even worse. Not only is God removing him from office, but he's going to replace him with someone better. That's hard to deal with. Maybe you've played sports growing up or you have kids who play sports. You know how hard it is for your kid to get benched for another kid? That's hard to deal with. You know how hard it is for athletes to be benched someone else? You know, in the professional world, they get traded. Why? Because the guy behind you is better. So you get to sit on the bench and watch that guy do your job better than you can. It's hard to be replaced. It's hard to be fired and then watch someone else take your job from you. That's a curse. So not only has Eli been removed, but he says, you and your descendants are going to watch someone come in and do it better. Where do we get this? Look at verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Eli is being replaced. The poor job that he has done is going to be replaced by somebody who will do a better job. So the summary of the text is that Eli has charges brought against him. Charges of profaning what is sacred, abusing his privilege, loving his children more than God. And his sentence is severe, his sentence is harsh, but his sentence is just. That he would have his office revoked from him. That his offspring, his family lineages, he is the federal head, will be cursed. Just as we are all cursed in Adam, because Adam is our federal head. Eli, the federal head of his family, has brought curses upon his family. And God is going to replace him with someone new. But I would argue this replacement is probably the key to this text. All we've done so far is just look at the the summary, the plot of the text, what's happening. But when we want to start talking about what is it that God is really trying to communicate through this text, this idea of replacing the unfaithful priest with a faithful priest is what's key for us. 35 is the key verse in this entire passage. Just the way it's worded. You will see a similarity to this when we start getting into David and we start getting into the king and we start talking about this Davidic covenant where God promises to establish this, this, this covenant with David where there will always be a king and one of David's descendants will be king, will sit on the throne forever. Now this is not a technical covenant but you see that kind of language. Verse 35 is really epic, we can't miss it. This is a huge promise of God. In light of this abused priesthood system, it's been abused for so long, God breaks through and he gives us a promise. He promises us something in this text. He promises to raise up a faithful servant who will be a faithful priest, who will be after my heart, who will be after my mind. In other words, what we're seeing in this text from Israel's perspective, is God is recognizing my people have a great need. And that need right now is for a faithful priest. The people of Israel know their spiritual life is dependent upon this faithful priest and this holy priesthood system. God sees the need of his people he sees their spiritual impo- their spiritual poverty and he promises to replace that with a faithful priest and now what the text has done is it has laid this very f- important first foundation stone for the rest of the bible for the rest of the scriptures we are going to be reminded of the importance of the priesthood of the importance of our need for a faithful priest and then when jesus shows up on the scene so much makes sense. When we come to the New Testament with this high view of the priesthood and with this high view of the priest, Jesus suddenly makes so much sense. Because the author here is not specifically talking about Jesus. But this is a foreshadow, a type, a promise, whether he knew it or not, of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate person who fulfills this promise here. We need a priest. We, just like Israel, are in desperate need of one, and God has given us one. That's the message to Israel, and that's the message for us today. Keep your marker here. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews, go into your New Testament. You have the Gospels and the book of Acts and then you have all of Paul's letter and we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it's Paul. It's the most popular opinion so they just put it right at the end. So that way if it is Paul it fits. If it isn't Paul it still fits. So you go past all of Paul's letters you get to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews specifically let's look at chapter 7. By the way, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is our new, permanent, faithful high priest. So really, the whole book of Hebrews is really what you need to, to, to read to prove the point today. But we're just going to focus on something, something shorter than the whole book. Hebrews chapter 7, look at verses 23 through 28 with me. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, Notice what Hebrews 7 is addressing. Hebrews 7 is addressing that, yes, God temporarily established a priesthood. Eli's sin was not capable of wrecking the whole priesthood. But the priesthood itself had a built-in design flaw. It was supposed to be imperfect. The priesthood itself was still not totally fixed. And here's why, because not every priest was as wicked as Eli. Not every priest had to be cut off and cursed like Eli. But you want to know what every priest still was? A sinner. So his sacrifices, his mediatorial office, was still stained. It was still imperfect. It was still not sufficient. So even though Samuel was so much greater than Eli, and even though Samuel was the fulfillment of the promise that we just read, he was still not what the people truly needed. He was still not capable of saving them to the uttermost because he was a sinner. But the text gives us a second reason why it was an imperfect priesthood. Even if Samuel, to say, wasn't a sinner, I mean, he may not have died if he wasn't a sinner, but that wasn't his only flaw. What was his other flaw? He eventually died. You could be the greatest priest in the world, but then you die and now the people are lacking again. So what do we do? We put a new priest. Maybe he's decently faithful, maybe he's good, I don't know. But if he dies, now the people are lacking again. So we get a new priest, and on and on it goes. We have this imperfect priesthood system where the sacrifices are not truly precious, the priest is not truly pure, and the priest cannot save us to the uttermost because he's eventually going to die and leave us without a priest. So God fulfilled his promise first and foremost by raising up Samuel. But there's a spiritual application we have to see in that Samuel is not the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, Jesus is. Because God has given every person in this room someone way better than Samuel. He's given us a priest far beyond Samuel. He's given us a priest who lives forever. He can never die. That's why we don't need a new one. He conquered death. And that's the text tells us that's why he's able to save to the uttermost. Because he mediates for you your salvation. And since he never fails and stops to mediate, your salvation never fails and stops. He can permanently, to the uttermost, save you. No other priest could do that. Because they all died. And more importantly, it says it is fitting that we should have a priest holy and unstained from the world. Even, obviously, Eli is like a, an extreme example of that, but Samuel was still not holy. And what was Samuel offering? Bulls and goats and birds. The book of Hebrews deals with that too. So God first and foremost fulfilled his promise by establishing the priesthood, bringing it back to order, and bringing restoration to it. And I don't, want to play, I don't want to downplay that. That was very important. That was very good of God to do. But at the end of the day, Samuel wasn't saving anybody. And the blood of gulls and boats, goats and rams and birds wasn't saving anybody. The true fulfillment of God's promise to give us a priest is found in Christ, who actually saves you, whose blood is actually precious. And this is why, I, you know, I'll conclude. It's, it's interesting. Sometimes when we speak of the transition from the Old to the New Testament, I'm guilty of this too. I'm not trying to be too nitpicky here. But sometimes we'll use language that is really not quite precise. It's, it's not truly accurate. And sometimes we'll say anything along the lines of this. Well, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, they had a temple and they had a priesthood and they had a sacrificial system. But now that Christ has come, now that the New Testament is here, you know, those things have been done away with. They're fulfilled. We don't don't need those things anymore. We don't do those things anymore. Yeah, kind of. But that's actually technically not true. It is not true at all that we don't have a temple anymore. It is not true at all that we don't need the temple. You are still, just like the Jews, you still worship, and the temple is vitally important to your worship. The difference is that it's been transformed, but it hasn't gone away. The Bible says that Jesus is the temple, and that we as united to him, become the body of Christ and become the temple. So God has not only not taken the temple away, he's actually upped the ante. You no longer worship in the temple, you worship as the temple. Peter says that we are all each individual living stones and the stones are packed up and we build the full house of God, the full temple of God. The temple worship is crucial to the New Testament. It's just different. People talk about, well, they used to do sacrifices in the Old Testament, but we don't do sacrifices anymore. Not true. Sacrifice is a huge, important role in New Covenant worship. That's obvious with, with the sacrifice of Christ. But even more than that, not only is Christ the foundation, his blood is the blood of the covenant, but the New Testament is clear. We bring sacrifices to church every single week, they're just not animal sacrifices. But the book of Hebrews later on says we bring sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. We bring, they're just spiritually transformed, but sacrifice is crucial to New Testament worship. The temple is crucial to New Testament worship. And likewise, same thing with the priest. It is not true that in the Old Testament they had the priesthood system, but now Christ comes and fulfilled that so we don't need the priesthood anymore. That is not true. If you don't have a priesthood, you're going to hell. Today, if you don't have a priest, if you don't have a priest mediating on your behalf, you're not saved. The priesthood system is alive and well in the New Testament. But it's been transformed. But Christ is fulfilling that role now. He didn't do away with it. He transformed it. But he is the high priest. And guess what? He will always be your high priest. You're going to go to heaven and you're going to worship Jesus for a thousand years and then a thousand years more and then a thousand years more. And guess what? He's going to continue to be at, after the, every set of a thousand years. Your priest who mediates on your behalf and who saves you to the uttermost. If you don't have a priesthood, you're in big trouble. God has not done away with the priesthood. He's made it better. He fixed it. He didn't do away with the temple. He made it better. He fixed it. And he did all of this in Christ. So what we have in 1 Samuel is we have a people who have a desperate need for a restored priesthood and a faithful high priest. And God fulfilled that first and foremost through Samuel. But ultimately, he fulfills that today. Today by giving us the high priest that we so desperately need. The one who can save us to the uttermost because he is holy and undefiled and because he always lives to make intercession for us.